You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Great. We're reading today from Exodus chapter 19. Um, so feel free to pull out your Bibles or your app on your phone. Um, it's also on the welcome page on our website too. Uh, Exodus chapter 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they uh, set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud, so that the people will hear me speaking with you, and will always put their trust in you. And then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everywhere in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. 
put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. And the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Amen. Good, good. Uh, this microphone's going to come on. Great. I'm going to pray uh, before we look at God's Word together. Uh, there's an outline of my talk in the, on the online welcome card that was referenced before. So if that's helpful for you, if you're kind of a logical, kind of visual learner type person, then you can follow along there. Uh, let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we thank you for this, your Word. And we just pray that uh, by the power of your Spirit, you would open our minds to understand it, our hearts to receive it and be changed by it for the glory of our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if you're a Christian, uh, which I suspect that that's quite a few of us here. Uh, If you're a Christian, someone who's put your faith in Christ, uh, I wonder what you think God's purpose was in saving you through faith in Christ. What was his purpose in rescuing you, in delivering you from your sins through faith in Christ? Maybe you want to think about that question a little bit. What was God's purpose in saving you? Perhaps as you think about that, your mind uh, automatically goes to what you might call mission. God saved me so that I could be a part of his mission to save others. Or maybe you think a little bit more broadly than that and you think about the kind of broader category of ministry and service, right? God saved me so that I could give my life to sacrificially serving him and his people. Or perhaps you think about the category of maturity, of growing. Uh, You think uh, and and you say to yourself, God saved me so that bit by bit over time he could make me more like Christ, his son. What do, you, what do you think God's purpose was in saving you? And now, of course, from one perspective, all of those things I've said uh, have a, a whole lot of truth in them, but I don't think any of them really get to the heart of why God saved you. And what we see in this passage from the book of Exodus, and really the rest of the book of Exodus, is that God saved you, not so that you could be busy doing stuff for Him, but so that you could enjoy being with Him. He delivered you from your sins that you might dwell with him. That's what we see in the book of Exodus. That you might walk with him and talk with him and delight in him and just enjoy being with him. God delivered us by his grace that we might dwell with him. That's the kind of summary of this passage. So let's take a look at first at the start of the passage, verses 1 and 2. Uh, I've called this part the journey of salvation. Uh, the journey of salvation usually involves the desert before delight. That's my summary. If you take a look at verses 1 and 2, uh, you'll see that Israel arrives at the desert surrounding Mount Sinai. Uh, it's a bit hard to tell, uh, but actually this is where Israel stays for the rest of the book of Exodus. The rest of the book of Exodus involves Moses going up and down Mount Sinai seven times. They don't move on from here. If you read the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, uh, tells us really that that Israel is camped here at Mount Sinai for a whole year. That's a long time. And that's important to remember because I reckon when we read about Israel's grumbling and complaining in the wilderness, we can be, well, we can be a little bit quick to kind of point the finger and judge them. But I reckon if I was in their shoes, 
I would also be thinking, what on earth is God doing? Like, I'm not, I'm not sure if the Israelites were thinking that. But the reality is that in Exodus chapter 3, you can chase it up later on, Exodus 3 verses 8 and 17, God promised the Israelites that he would take them up to Palestine, the land of the Canaanites. And yet here he's taking them not up to Palestine, but in the exact opposite direction, right down to Mount Sinai. You can read there in Exodus 3 that God promised them a good and prosperous land, a land, you remember, described as flowing with milk and honey, a wonderful land. And yet here God's taken them not to that sort of land, but a dry and arid wilderness, a place where you wouldn't be able to get anything to grow. The Israelites surely were thinking, what on earth is God doing? And maybe you can relate a bit to the Israelites if, if you're a Christian. You became a Christian and you kind of thought that that would mean life would get better. That life would be easier, it would be full of new freedoms and joys and delights. And maybe there were elements of that, right? But then what you discovered was that God actually took you into the wilderness. You've struggled, you've stumbled, you've suffered. And maybe you sometimes even think to yourself, maybe life would have been better if I'd just stayed in Egypt. Before I even became a Christian. At least then I could have fun. You know, I just expected better than this. Because the, the reality is that what the Israelites are experiencing here is actually the normal shape of the Christian life. It's the normal journey of salvation. Because as, as Christians, we're following in the footsteps of, well, of Jesus. And what do we see when we look at Jesus' journey? Well, we see that the, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we see uh, that the glory comes after suffering. Well, that's what we see. The path to glory goes through suffering. The path to power goes through weakness. The path to Jesus' cross, a crown rather, goes through his cross. The path to joy goes through suffering, uh, through sorrow. The path to being exalted goes through being humbled. The path to the abundant delights of heaven, right, that the promised land, to use the language of the Old Testament, goes through the dry and arid wilderness. Right? This is the normal journey of the Christian life. And what we see with Israel in the wilderness is God is right there with them and has his purposes for bringing them into the wilderness, that they might meet with him. And so maybe that's why God has brought you into the wilderness too. That, that's the journey of salvation. Then the next part of the passage I've called the order of salvation, the order of salvation. And we see in this section, verses 3 to 8, uh, I've summarized it as deliverance before demands. We've had desert before delight, we've got deliverance before demands. Take a look at in verse 3. Uh, you'll see that, I've, I've said, for the first of seven times in the book of Exodus, what does Moses do? He must be getting fit. Uh, he goes up Mount Sinai to speak with God. And God speaks to him first, if you look in verse 4, uh, about what he has done in the past. Right? He's delivered Israel by his grace. And notice that, that, uh, that we're told here that, that unlike Jethro, you remember Jethro a couple of weeks ago in Exodus 18, uh, he was hearing from Moses about everything that the Lord had done for Moses and Israel. Not the Israelites. 
Right? They, they know for themselves what God has done. They've personally seen it. They, they've personally experienced it, being caught up in it. And they've seen, if you look at verse 4, what God did to Egypt. How God, by the power of his mighty hand, brought them out of Egypt, uh, brought about his destructive plagues upon Egypt. They, they saw that personally. And they saw how God carried them on eagles' wings, which is to say that the Israelites really know deeply, deeply and profoundly that their kind of exodus from Egypt was 100% a gift from God. It was all of His grace. They, they contributed absolutely nothing to getting out of Egypt. God did it all. Just like an eagle might pick up its young and carry them out of danger, God has picked up His people and carried them on eagles' wings. And if you look at the end of verse 4, where we see that the reason God did that, why did God do that? Why did He rescue His people, deliver His people by His grace? Well, it was that He might bring His people to Himself. He drew them out of Egypt so that they could draw near to Him. He delivered them from Egypt so that they could dwell with Him. That's what God has done in the past. He's delivered His people by His grace. And then in verse 5, where we see what God demands. Take a look there. God calls his people whom he's saved by his grace to obey him fully and to keep his covenant. Notice that, to keep his covenant. What does that tell us? It tells us that Israel is already the special covenant people of God. The special people that God has bound himself to from Genesis chapter 12 when he made promises to Abraham, he's bound himself to them as his covenant people that he's bound together with promises. And God made those promises. You can chase this up in Deuteronomy chapter 7 later on if you like. But God made those promises to Abraham and his descendants not because they were better than anyone else or they were bigger than anyone else or they were more moral or more spiritual than anyone else. Why did God choose to, to make covenant promises to Abraham? Simply because he chose to. Simply because he, he freely decided to set his love and affection upon Abraham and his descendants. It's about his grace. That's how they're his people. But being God's special covenant people by grace, Israel is now to keep God's covenant, keep his covenant by obeying him. So I'm going to be laboring this a little bit, but it's really important to get this order right. You see the order in the passage, the order of salvation. Like lots of people think that Christianity says, if you obey God, if you meet his requirements, if you meet his demands, then maybe he might accept you as being a part of his people. He might welcome you into his special people. That's what lots of people think Christianity says. What we see here is what God actually says is he freely rescues his people by his grace. And then he calls them. He says, if you love me, you'll obey me in response to your experience of my love. Out of gratitude, out of joy, out of a desire to please the one who has already saved you by grace. By God, uh, what God has done, he's delivered his people by grace. What God demands, he demands that his people obey him. And in verses 5 to 8, well, we see what God promises, which is there's a blessing that follows from obedience, the full blessings of being his covenant people. 
Take a look here from verse 5, or as I read it in a second, you'll see that there's a, a change of tense here where we've kind of moved from what God has done in the past to what God says he's going to do in the future. Take a look from verse 5. And now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, uh, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God's making promises of blessing to his covenant people, to Israel. The first blessing that he promises is that of Israel being a treasured possession. And that word treasured possession refers uh, to a special treasure uh, that belongs to a great king. I think in this context, there's a king, a sovereign ruler over his realm. Uh, he really owns everything in his realm. He's got masses of treasures in his storehouses. Uh, but then he's got his personal treasure, his special treasure that he keeps in his chambers. This is, the, this is his real delight, the, the, the treasure that he absolutely must keep close to him. That's the idea here. That, that's what God's saying to Israel. He's saying, all of, uh, every nation on earth belongs to me. Uh, but I've chosen you to be my special treasure, uh, to be the, the people uh, that is precious to me, the people that I want to keep close to me. How do we think about this? Because from one perspective, Israel is already God's treasured possession, right? We've seen that in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, how does God refer to Israel? He refers to them as his firstborn son, which is to say, Israel is my precious people. Israel is my great treasure, my firstborn son. Uh, but here in Exodus 19, God's saying that, that if you want to enjoy the full blessings of being my firstborn son, the full blessings of being my treasured possession, then you have to keep my covenant. You have to obey my commandments. If you're unfaithful to me, if you don't keep my covenant, it's not that you cease to be my special people, but you'll enjoy, experience the curses of being my unfaithful people rather than the full blessings of being my faithful people. They don't fall out of being God's special people, but they don't experience the full blessings of that. And that's what we see in the Old Testament. God promises Israel. He says, you will be my treasured possession. You'll enjoy the full blessing of being my treasured possession. Second, he promises them uh, the blessing of being a kingdom of priests. And there's a lot you could read into this idea of being a kingdom of priests, but I reckon the central idea, if you look at the rest of the book of Exodus, it's the priests that enjoy the privilege of accessing God's presence. So I think that's a central thing that God's saying here, that Israel as a whole is going to enjoy the privilege of dwelling in God's presence, of accessing the very presence of God. And if they keep his covenant, they'll enjoy all the blessings that come from that, of God himself dwelling with them. But if they don't keep his covenant, then God's presence will withdraw from them. It's not that they cease to be his people, but if you read, for example, in the book of Ezekiel, God's presence actually leaves the temple. God's saying, you're no longer living under my blessing because you haven't kept my covenant. Israel is still his people. Uh, but for a season, they don't enjoy the full blessings of being God's people. A third, God promises Israel that they will be a holy nation. Once again, we've got this kind of 
this kind of two-part thing. Because uh, from one perspective, Israel's already God's holy nation, aren't they? God chose Abraham and his descendants to make them holy. He set them apart as being his people. They're sanctified as his people out of all the nations on earth. From that perspective, they're God's holy nation. And nothing can change that. Uh, and yet, as his holy nation, they're to live as his holy people. They're to live different and distinct lives that display the glory of God's holiness to all the nations around them, particularly when they enter into the promised land. And to the degree that they live those holy and different and distinct lives, that's the, the, the degree to which they will display God's holiness. Or they could be completely blended in to the people around them. Those are wonderful blessings. Imagine being God's treasured possession, his special treasure, having access to the very presence of God, a kingdom of priests, being able to being a part of the people that puts on display God's holiness, his glorious holiness to the world around us. And as we sang in that song, we declare in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter takes those words that God speaks to his people, uh, the Israel, and applies them to the church. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special position, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Israel was delivered by God's grace. Likewise, Peter is saying, we have been caught up in God's new exodus. By God's mercy to us through faith in Christ, we've also been delivered from the kingdom of spiritual darkness into God's kingdom of light. It's all a work of God's wonderful mercy. And so by God's mercy in Christ, our identity is absolutely secure as God's treasured possession, his royal priesthood, his holy nation. But does that mean we're off the hook? No. Peter's saying, live your identity out. Live your identity out that you might experience the full blessings of being God's people. And live that identity out so that as God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that all the nations might be blessed through us, through you. So that's the, uh, where are we up to? That's the order of salvation. It's really important to get that right, isn't it? Grace, graciously saved by God committing yourself to obeying God and the promise of blessing following obedience. Oh, what's the purpose of salvation? Uh, this is where we started. Why is it that God has delivered his people from Egypt? Uh, I said before, it's that they might dwell with him. Uh, this is the rest of the passage. Uh, so I've divided it up. Uh, the first thing I want you to see is three conditions of dwelling with God. Uh, so you might want to follow them through. The first condition in, in uh uh, in verses really 7 to 9, uh, is that we can only dwell with God if he reveals himself by speaking to us. Uh, take a look there in, verses, uh, in verse, uh, verses 8 and 9, Moses ascends the mountain for a second time. I said there's seven of these things, so this is the second time. And God says in verse 9, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud uh, so that the people will hear me speaking with you. 
You read this chapter and there's a whole lot of kind of physical or visible manifestations of God's presence, aren't there? There's smoke, there's fire, there's lightning, thick clouds. But in the end, God is invisible. God is spirit. So if we want to know him, if we want to relate to him, want to dwell with him, the way that happens is if he reveals himself by speaking to us. That's why God draws near to Israel, uh, but they hear his voice. We can only dwell with God if he reveals himself by speaking to us. That's the first condition. The second condition is that we can only dwell with God uh, if our trust is in his mediator. Uh, Look in uh, verses 8 and 9. God uh, wants the Israelites, uh, he says, to overhear him speaking with Moses. Why is that? So that they would always put their trust in him. Moses is the mediator between God and his people. You notice it's Moses who's going up and down the mountain. He gets words from God. He brings them to God's people. Israel can only dwell with God if they put their trust in the person and ministry of Moses, God's mediator. That's important to be clear on. And third, uh, verses 10 to 15, uh, we can only dwell with God if, uh, if we are holy. As the writer in Hebrews says, uh, without holiness, uh, or what is it? Only the holy, uh, holy can see God. Without holiness, it's impossible to see God, I think is the word. That's the same here. Take a look in verses 10 and 11. God tells Moses, go down the, motor, uh, go down the mountain again. Once again, it's a workout for him. Go down the mountain again. Tell the people to prepare themselves to meet with me. And so they go through this three-day process of consecrating themselves, of making themselves holy. And there's not a lot of detail about what this process involved. We are told that it involves washing all of their clothes, which is always a good thing to do. Uh, And also, verse 15, if you cast your eyes down, uh, it involves abstaining from sex, which is interesting. Oh, I thought I'd just kind of mention that because there is a bit of a perception that, that Christians are like, you know, prudes when it comes to sex. And well, here it is. If you want to be holy, you can't have sex. But that's not actually what's being said here. Right? Sex is a good gift from God. Husband and wife should enjoy it to their heart's content in the context of marriage. Uh, but here, what's going on, I think, is that this is a moment when God wants his people to consecrate themselves completely to him, to give themselves wholly and completely to him. And I think that what's going on is that God's saying the act of, uh, the, the act of sex, where you give yourself completely to another person, that act in this moment might distract from their consecration, their devotion to God. You can chase it up in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul has some advice for husbands and wives there. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5, which I think is a similar idea. Don't deprive one another, he says, except for a short time that you might devote yourselves to prayer. You can read up in in 1 Corinthians uh, Corinthians 7. So this process of making themselves holy, consecrating themselves, it's needed. Uh, If you look at verse 11... Uh, because God, in all his glorious holiness, is going to descend upon Mount Sinai. Uh, and then we have those verses in verses 12 to 14, uh, where the reason they need to consecrate themselves uh, is that without being made holy, God's holy presence is deadly. 
It's deadly, not just for the Israelites, but for all their animals. You know, imagine being an Israelite by Mount Sinai. God set these limits around the mountain, and you're just like, well, there's a, a stray cow kind of ducking off, and you're just like, I'm going to save my cow. You know, my, my toddler's wandered off. And anyway, so, like, this is a serious, I'm, I'm sort of tongue in cheek, but this is, the, this is the reality. God's holy presence is deadly for us in all our sin and impurity and brokenness. It's not that God's presence is bad for us. It's that God's presence is too good for us. God's presence is a little bit like the glory of the sun. The sun's good, right? The sun brings light and life to absolutely everything that feels its warmth. The sun is good. But if you try to walk into the presence of the sun with all your limitations as a human being actually onto the sun, too close to the sun, you'll you'll soon discover that the sun is deadly. It's not because the sun is bad, it's just because the sun is too good, too pure, too powerful. That's what's going on here. That's why in verses 16 to 19, God actually comes, uh, comes down and dwells on the mountain. Uh, I've summarized uh, as the terrifying but accommodating God. I take a look from verse 16. Uh, On the morning of the third day, uh, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain uh, and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp uh, to meet with God uh, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke uh, because uh, the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace uh, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, uh, Moses spoke uh, and the whole... uh, Sorry, yeah, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. So there's a lot of detail here. We don't have time to look at all of it. Uh, But two kind of key ideas. Uh, First, the the fact that God descends upon this mountain like a blazing fire reminds us of what I was just saying before. Uh, That in God's uh, holy presence, uh, God's holy presence should be absolutely terrifying for us in our sin, in our impurity and imperfection and brokenness. We see that throughout the Old Testament. Remember when Adam and Eve sin against God? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, God drives them out of the garden. What does he put at the entrance to the garden? He puts a flaming sword flashing back and forth. What's the message? The message is, in your sin, you are excluded from my presence. Or as that kid's book says, because of your sin, you can't come in. Right? In your sin, you're excluded from God's holy presence. Fire is a sign of that. Exodus 3, God appears to Moses on this very same mountain. How does he appear? In the flames of a burning bush. And he says to Moses, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing on is holy ground. From one perspective, the glorious and holy presence of God should absolutely terrify us. In our sin, God's holy presence is like the sun. It's dangerous. 
It's deadly. And yet the other theme in this chapter uh, is that God is so eager to dwell with us, to be with us, for us to be able to draw near to him, uh, that he actually accommodates himself to us. In verse 16, you see that a thick cloud covers the mountain. The same thing was back in verse 9, or at least God's prediction of that. If you read through the, the, the first part of the book of Exodus, you'll know that this pillar of cloud isn't really something that terrifies the Israelites. It's something that comforts the Israelites. It's the pillar of cloud that protects it and guides the Israelites. I've included some verses there in the outline. You can look them up later on. But I think the point of this cloud is that God wants to dwell with his people without destroying them. In crude terms, he really wants to be able to dwell with them. He knows he can't abandon his holiness. He can't change himself. He can't, uh, yeah, he can't abandon his holiness. Uh, he, can't, he doesn't really want to diminish his holiness. But in his humility and grace, he is prepared to obscure his holiness, to cover it a bit, to shroud it behind this cloud so that he can accommodate himself to actually be able to dwell near his people. And of course, don't have time to chase that through, but that lands with Jesus, right? How we see the glory of God descending in the person of Christ. So we come to verses 20 to 25, uh, where uh, we've got three warnings about dwelling with God. I'll, I'll move through these quickly. The first warning is don't try to force your way into God's presence. Verse 20, Moses ascends the mountain for this third time and God says, Go down and warn the people uh, so that they do not force their way through. I think what's going on here is that God knows that after three days of serious spiritual disciplines, you know, this process of of consecrating themselves, uh, the Israelites have gotten a little bit complacent. They think that they've made themselves so holy that they can just kind of barge their way into God's presence without any regard for the limits or boundaries that God has put in place. And God says, no, you're not holy enough. You can't force your way into my presence. Respect the limits. Which leads to the second warning, which is that God says, don't approach me like a casual tourist. Go down and warn the people, God uh, says, uh, uh, to not force their way through to see the Lord. The Israelites aren't approaching God with the awe and reverence that he deserves. Uh, they want to burst through these boundaries that God has put in place to see the Lord, to, you know, to check him out, to get a look, have a squiz at the glory of God. God says, that's not on. Our family, uh, on and off, but mostly we've had a membership to the Melbourne Zoo for the however long since Ada's been born, probably. And uh, the reality is that you can approach the lion enclosure quite casually as long as you respect the boundaries that have been put in place. That's true, isn't it? Like... If, you're, if there's a, a glass kind of wall, an enclosure around the lion, you, you can be pretty casual, just chatting away. There's a lion right there. It might only be, you know, on the other side. But you're quite casual. You're quite safe. Of course, if you try to force your way through that boundary because you're desperate to see the lion, you know, you, you want a, a close encounter with the glorious lion, 
then you'll soon discover that you are in deadly danger. That's what's going on here. Don't treat God like some exhibit at the zoo, at the museum. Don't treat God like a casual tourist. Now, the third warning is don't presume you can enter God's presence because of your privileged position. Take a look in, in verse 22. Moses uh, is to say, verse 22, even the priests who, uh, who do approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. We said that before the priests had this great privilege of being able to access God's presence Uh, But once again, God doesn't want them to think that that puts them in a different category to the rest of the Israelites. In one sense, they are, but from another perspective, they're just as sinful as the rest of them. And God's presence is equally dangerous for them. So they mustn't get complacent. They too have to consecrate themselves to make themselves holy. So with these warnings in mind, I guess the obvious question is how can anyone dwell in God's holy presence? How is it possible for anyone to dwell with God, to draw near to God, to be with God? And maybe it's no surprise to you, it's all about Jesus, right? It's about Jesus, the, the ultimate Moses. So we're trying to kind of draw, join some dots here. We saw earlier in the passage those three conditions of dwelling with God. Remember, Israel could only dwell with God if God revealed himself by speaking to them, if they trusted in Moses, God's mediator, and if they were holy. Those were the three conditions of dwelling with God. But at the end of Exodus chapter 19, it's very clear that Moses' work and Moses the person, uh, they just couldn't make God's people holy enough to safely enter the presence of God. And so at the end of Exodus 19, uh, we're left longing for for a a better Moses, a greater Moses, really the ultimate Moses, and that Moses is Jesus. Uh, There's lots of places you could go in the book of of Hebrews to establish this, but I just want to focus on one verse because I don't want us to kind of jump all over the place and get confused. So if you've got a Bible, you could flick to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, uh, where we see that Jesus is the ultimate Moses, the one to whom Moses uh, points. Hebrews 12, verse 24, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, joining the dots from earlier in the passage, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, uh, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Moses brought words from God, words to Israel that revealed God to them. But Jesus is the ultimate word from God. He speaks a better word, particularly his blood on the cross here. But Hebrews started with the idea that Jesus is the ultimate word from God. Hebrews 1 verse 1, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, like Moses, in many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Right? God spoke to the Israelites through Moses, but he speaks to us through Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate word from God, and Jesus is God's ultimate mediator. Right? As Christians, Hebrews 12 verse 24, we have come to Jesus, 
the mediator of a new covenant. So to dwell with God as his covenant people, the Israelites had to trust in Moses, God's mediator, not us. We have to trust in Jesus, God's mediator. It's Jesus who goes between us and God and makes it possible for us to have a new relationship with God, a new covenant, uh, which is brought about, Hebrews 12, verse 24, through, through Christ's sprinkled blood shed on the cross. Now, the writer of the Hebrews saying that, that Christ's sprinkled blood speaks a better word to God than the blood of Abel. Of the blood of Abel, maybe you remember uh, Cain murdered his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4. And the blood of Abel cried out to God that justice must be done. This, is a, this murder is a great injustice. Justice must be done. Uh, but Christ's blood shed on the cross uh, speaks a better word than that. Christ was murdered on a cross outside Jerusalem, but his blood cries out to God, justice has been done fully and finally and perfectly. There's nothing more left to pay because Christ's blood shed on the cross pays the just penalty for the sin that we deserve to pay so that we might bear the perfect holiness of Christ that we don't deserve. And having made, being made holy, perfectly holy and blameless and righteous through faith in Christ, we can freely, boldly enter the perfect holy presence of our God. Right? Jesus is the ultimate word from God, the ultimate mediator from God, because his blood shed on the cross makes us holy enough to enter the presence of a holy God. I wonder what you think God's purpose was in saving you. I suspect that some of you think God saved you so that you could stay a little bit away from him at a distance and be, be, be busy doing a bunch of stuff for him. You don't want to bother him too much. You don't want to annoy him or frustrate him. So you just keep your distance. Serve him well in mission, in ministry, do your best to grow more like Jesus because God's baseline position towards you is indifference. Now, God does want you to engage in mission and to serve him in ministry and to grow in maturity, uh, but those things aren't primarily God's purpose in saving you. God saved you not because he wanted you to be busy doing stuff for him, but because he wanted you to enjoy being with him. I was thinking this week, uh, when Gabby and I were deciding to have kids, we didn't sit down uh, and say, you know, it'd be really good to have some kids because we need some extra help around the house. You know, we could really set them to work. You know, or like this, my mission is to make a name for myself, to put my name up in lights, and I could kind of do that through my kids, you see. That'd be wonderful. I have kids to make my name great. Some people think, oh, that's, that's the main reason why. No, 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 no. I had kids... Because I enjoy, I, I just wanted to love them and be with them. Like God's primary purpose in saving you, in delivering you, is that you might be able to draw near to him, to dwell with him, to delight in him. Through faith in Christ, God isn't indifferent to you. He's not annoyed with you or constantly frustrated with you. God delights in you. He loves you. You are his treasured possession. He wants to keep you close to him. Through the presence of his spirit, God doesn't just dwell with you, he dwells in you. 
Sorry, I'm rambling a bit. But you know, in Acts chapter 2, what comes down from heaven? Fire. Tongues of fire. The same God who came down on Mount Sinai is in you. That's how close he wants to be with you. God delivered us by his grace that we might dwell with him today and forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, we praise you for your grace to us in Christ. Uh, we thank you that you have indeed delivered us from our sins uh, and that we might dwell with you uh, today and forever. Amen.